Peace, peace, and welcome. I am here with Miss um, Danielle Belton. Pronounced yes. correctly. That is correct. <laughs> um, editor in chief of one of the most important publications of our era, The Root, accomplished journalist, um, and uh, all around rock star in, in the Black community and in the world at large. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. So um, for the past year, I've been doing this thing called Cook on Monday Morning. That's mm-hmm. a podcast that I started. I'm, um, I'm, I'm on the Board of Education in San Francisco, and uh, I started to do these interviews to capture people that were like high capacity, productive, that had important perspectives on their community and the world in general. And so um, being that we're in quarantine, I changed the name to Cook on Quarantine. <laughs> and uh, how is quarantine going? Like what's, what's going on in New York? You're based in, what, what city are you based in? I'm in, I'm in New York, I live in Harlem. You're in Harlem, okay, okay, mm-hmm. cool. Um, what's it been like? How's it going? It's, you know, it's been fine. I've been doing a lot more cooking than I've probably ever done um, mm-hmm. in my life. Um, probably not since, uh, like I used to cook a lot, like back when I was like super broke, you know, where I couldn't <laughs> yeah. afford to eat out or get to carry uh-huh. out or any type of out, like it just didn't happen. Right. Um, and so now I'm back to cooking on that level, on poverty levels. So yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been, doing, I've been doing that. I've been doing that actually. I think I've heard that from a lot of people and I've, I've been trying to like make sure my produce doesn't spoil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like things, I, I cooked so much last week that I'm actually sick of my own food, but uh-huh. you, yeah, I'm a good, and I'm a decent cook. Like, uh-huh. so it's not like the end of the world. Like I can make most things like, mm-hmm. I had a craving for blueberry muffins, so I made some blueberry muffins from scratch last night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like my whole world just seems to now revolve around work and food and whatever's on television at night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what, what's the uh, what's what's changed at the root? Was it was it like really remote before? In terms, yeah, of- it was already really remote. A lot of our staff is scattered throughout the country and work from home anyway, so it really only impacted the New York staff. Okay. And how long have you been editor-in-chief? I've been editor-in-chief since 2017, but I've been leading the route since 2016. Originally, I was promoted to managing editor, which for the longest time was the highest title you could have at the route. Mm -hmm. And then they created the editor-in-chief position in 2017 after they um, folded in all the Gizmodo media sites uh, Mm -hmm. because they all had EICs. And so I got promoted to EIC in July 2017. Okay. What? Um, what's the what's the story of the founding? Like, how was the root started? What was the objective? How was it sort of? Sure. So the root was originally founded by a scholar Henry Louis Gates and oh, yeah. Donald mm-hmm. Graham, originally of the Washington Post, mm-hmm. back in uh, two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole idea was to create a Black Huffington Post at the time, and originally the root had a genealogy slant because uh, Gates as you know, it's very much into helping people, you know, better understand their past. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he had a column um, called Tracing Your Roots that ran concurrently along with his TV show, Finding um, Your Roots, that you know, runs currently on PBS. And, you know, it was very much about the news that, you know, was impacting the African-American community on a daily basis in the era of Obama, when, you know, when we first started out as a site. Um, 
we were often very, um, you know, back in the day, it was really more of a traditional news website. Um, so it was all about like trying to show both sides of different opinions and trying to be as impartial as you could possibly be. And then in 2016, 2017, after I uh, took the helm at the site, I decided that in the age of Trump, that just didn't make sense anymore. Um, you know, black people are not monolithic, but we do have opinions that can often be perceived that way where it's like, where everyone seems to be on the same page. Like not, not, of course, not everyone is always on the same page. Like everyone, we have disagreements. We have things we don't like. Um, we have things that we might have difference of opinions on, but when it came to the Trump administration, it felt weird to try to do a both sides argument when, you know, over 90% of black people didn't vote for Trump. You know, and it felt weird to try to have like a both sides argument like about racism. Like, so we decided just to embrace just being pro-black. Okay. So we're going to be 100% uh, about blackness, uh, about black people's thoughts and ideas and opinions, um, that we were going to talk about different aspects of blackness and where there are those points of contention and debate. But we're not going to pretend like you can be impartial about racism. Like it just, no, this, it's a silly argument. It's just like people who are arguing, you know, about the 1619 project because they feel like it's not fair enough to slave owners. I'm just like, mm. like mm. slavery was bad. Like that's not, that's not a debate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some yeah. people aren't debates. And when you entertain that and try to make it seem like it's a debate, that's, that's where there's the problem. And so the root got out of the whole both sides business and just fully embrace what it meant to be black. Mm -hmm. And um, we've been very successful ever since we made that decision. Kudos to, to you and your leadership for that. When I, I mentioned a, 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 a radio interview I heard of you and you talked about your upbringing and that your mm -hmm. father um, worked as a, as an engineer for aerospace. Yes. He was in the aerospace industry for over 30 years. And, um, and you talked about um, being exposed to the news and sort of like your passion for how um, you got into journalism. Um, what did, what, where did you do your undergrad again? I went to Southern Illinois University, uh, Edwardsville campus. Okay. okay, and did you grow up in Chicago? No, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri, okay. Um, what was the, was there, was there a book or a journalist that initially sparked your passion where you thought like, okay, this is it, I'm gonna do this? You know, it was a combination of factors. Like I was always into journalism from a very young age. I started reading the newspaper daily, like around like 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. I used to watch the nightly news every night with my parents. So it was like a confluence of people who really influenced me in my early years and my love of journalism. It was individuals like Ed Bradley and uh, Dan Rather and because we were a CBS family. So there's going to be a lot of CBS people getting named. Leslie Stahl. I watched a lot of 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I loved Tim Russert. Like, like, you know, Meet the Press was like must watch appointment television in our household along with 60 Minutes. Um, but then I also like grew up like just reading a lot of fantastic journals, especially once I got um, around like high school age. Um, and then I started exploring music journalism. And so I got really into hip hop. 
And so I would read, you know, Kevin Powell and I would read, um, God, I'm blanking on people's names, Daniel Smith, um, Joan Morgan, you know, all these people who at the time were writing for Vibe magazine um, was really huge, really, really into that magazine. I used to actually, for art projects, I would cut out the images from the magazine and make like vision boards out of them. Like I was so hardcore into Vibe as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like those are the people that really influenced me the most, I would say, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as just like some of the local journalists uh, in St. Louis who were doing amazing work. Um, and plus, I love the written word. I was a voracious reader. Um, my favorite period of writing is the Harlem Renaissance. So I read a lot of Harlem Renaissance writers, a lot of Langston Hughes, a lot of Audre Lorde, a lot of um, a lot of really cool folks. And so it's like all that together, you know, kind of like made me see journalism as a tool. Um, as a way to really inform people about the world around them, but in a creative and entertaining way, so it would be more digestible. And so as a tool, right? As a tool, and, and now The Root is unapologetically pro-Black. Mm-hmm. Um, how are I you- think it wasn't pro-Black before, but now we're like, now we don't care. Like, I think, <laughs> I think there was an element of respectability politics before where it was like, well, we have to be a certain way. And like, uh-huh. now I'm just like, eh, yeah, yeah. you don't have to do that at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it. In, I mean, I'm in San Francisco, and um, San Francisco is a has a reputation of being like this really progressive liberal city, mm-hmm. and for uh, the black community here, it feels very much anti-black. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the you know with 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 the with the site that I think I would say has like progressive values. Mm-hmm. Um, in a political structure that, you know, where the black community often feels like overlooked. I'm wondering like how, um, I don't know if you agree with that statement, the black community is like overlooked within the- In the Bay Area? Definitely. Um, well, well, yeah, all, but just within like the sort of like progressive liberal wing of politics. Oh, totally, totally. How does, how does the root come at somebody like, like, uh, like a Joe Biden given like his, you know, this is, I want to talk about a number of different things, but just like, yeah, 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 yeah. How, no, how I understand. Tool, like, how is it, um, how is it holding all these things? Like, uh, you know, it's like the impact, but I don't know if the question makes sense either. No, it does make <laughs> sense. So basically, <laughs> when you are fully unapologetically yourself, um, you know, like you're just team black. So it's not like you're not a Democrat or Republican. You just team whatever it takes to get us free. So um, that means sometimes we have very harsh criticism for liberals. Because, I mean, the reality is, is that you have a lot of white liberals who have internalized racism, who don't actually care about people of color, particularly black people at all. And they think, well, I'm a liberal and I'm a progressive, so I can't be a racist. Like, actually, you can. Mm -hmm. Like, you can totally, totally still be racist and call yourself a liberal or a progressive. Uh, Because, you know, racism isn't, about, well, you know, I'm nice to my doorman. Like that's, you know, if that was black people's biggest problem was like rude people, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, well, then what would, we be, what would we be talking about right now? Like our problem is systemic racism where our schools disproportionately are underfunded and have fewer resources than white schools. 
Um, we are often cordoned off due to redlining into worse areas of the city to live. And then once we make those terrible areas our home, we, then we have to deal with gentrification where you have people move into and then like improve your area, but you don't get to enjoy Mm-hmm. any of those improvements because now it's so expensive you can't afford to live there anymore right. so we have a, uh, a saying at the root it's the, our unofficial motto is that anybody can get it um okay and that anybody white <laughs> 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 liberals like they can get it like yeah. there's there's no sacred cows you know I, like, I actually i actually also that's my unofficial motto too <laughs> 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 like anybody can catch catch these hands these right. long hands right. yes there's just one thing about like speaking truth to power calling things out then there's mm-hmm. just an aspect of um moving the community forward and building right the, the, the root is obviously a business it, it's building something it's mm-hmm. giving a platform to people also to write um what is the what would you say it's trying to build um instead of i mean because it's calling out stuff but then there's also like creating and building something mm-hmm. like what is mm-hmm. it trying to build or be the catalyst for building within the black community? Oh, of course. So like a lot of people tend to focus like on our like punchier, funnier headlines. But if you actually read, you read the story, um, <laughs> there's usually lots of very powerful information, whether it's about history, whether it's about politics or policy, whether it's statistical information or trends, you know, like we are having really deep conversations daily on the root. So it's not like the jokey headline is just to get you like to pay attention. The actual story is full of valuable information that can be quite helpful for black people to make better decisions about their world around them, which is actually my secret goal in everything that we do at the root. So it's like, yeah, like we might write about Kanye or whatever. But, you know, you come for that and you stay for, like, our in-depth, you know, coverage like we did on earlier this year, like on Pete Buttigieg. You know, Mm -hmm. Michael Harriet wrote a viral piece about Pete Buttigieg um, that had a very provocative headline. But if you actually read it, you got into the substantive argument around how many um, white liberals like Pete Buttigieg view the education system and where traditionally, you know, white people will will blame black people like, oh, they just don't have role models. And that's why their kids don't do well in school, as opposed to the schools are underfunded, thanks to institutional racism, the teachers have fewer resources. And the children are growing up in depressed areas where they also have fewer resources um, to depend on. So it's like, let's just ignore all that and just say that, you know, because they can't meet you know, a doctor or a lawyer, that's the re- black doctors or black lawyers. That's the reason why, you know, black kids aren't going to college. And it's like, that's, that's garbage. Mm-hmm. And so Michael took apart that argument, which got, you know, Mayor Pete's attention. And we did several follow-up stories that kind of got into more depth around uh, Pete Buttigieg's views on race, um, which weren't particularly nuanced or, um, like good. Like it wasn't like, <laughs> and it wasn't like he was being like, willfully harmful is more like negligently harmful where it was like you know black police officers in south bend were coming to him about the discrimination they were facing he just didn't do anything about it Uh he just didn't take it seriously Uh you know which makes me think that he doesn't think that systemic racism is an actual issue because all of his actions in south bend reflected that but he just didn't see 
that, oh, the problem is systemic racism. He's like, oh, the problem must be these people are whining, you know, and I'm just going to ignore it and hopefully it'll go away. And so I try, decide to try to run for president and then Michael Harriet writes an article about it. So, yeah. um, so we have a variety of content that kind of like, that does that, you know? Like <laughs> there was this uh, meme um, that, well, there is this meme. It's still current. People still use it from time to time where it says, uh, get someone who can do both. Um, and it was in reference, the first time I ever saw it was a reference to Mark Lamont Hill, who is an intelligent person, who is a scholar, who is an author, but also sometimes hosts like the Basketball Wives reunions. Uh, and so <laughs> people are like, huh? What's uh, Mark Lamont uh, Hill doing hosting the Basketball Wives reunion? Uh, Somebody wrote like, get you TV. Yeah, that can do both. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a TV and I don't watch, and I don't watch reality shows, but I actually didn't know that he did that. Yeah, yeah. So then someone said, get you a man that can do both. Well, then that was their statement about Mark Lamont Hill. And that's kind of what the root is. Like, we're a publication. We can do both. Like, we can do serious political exposés, and we can do investigative journalism, and we can have serious analysis. And we can also do a jokey post ranking, like, the best parts of the chicken. So, yes. Yeah, do it all. Do both. <laughs> we uh, are the site that does both. I dig that. Uh, you talked about uh, in the era of Trump, the the, the root had to be more um, outward in its like pro black agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? What is your? I mean, you know. So Barack Obama inspired me to run for office, right? Like when I was in two thousand eight, um, I couldn't stop. Two thousand seven, I couldn't stop watching TV. I was just like, yeah. No, it was amazing. All day. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And so I felt, and I, I found myself while he was president, like defending things that I wouldn't if mm-hmm. it were like a white president, like uh, like drone strikes or like um, uh, deportation or, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, the fact that Wall Street wasn't held more accountable during the, the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How 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 are you holding that? Like, you know, what what would you say that? Um, what is your reflections on like the Barack Obama presidency and how it what it did for the black community? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the the Barack Obama presidency is complicated because on the one hand, this was one of the singular most inspirational, feel good historical, once-in-a-lifetime things that has happened in our lifetimes, you know? Um, Like, Barack Obama winning Iowa was the reason why, you know, I dedicated, rededicated myself to journalism and started my blog, The Black Snob, which was the blog that led to me eventually getting this job at The Root, which was a popular politics and cultural blog, like, back around 2007 to about 2011 Mm -hmm. was when it was operating. And he was inspiration of that. But I mean, I know so many black people who have this story where it's like Barack Obama became president and inspired me to move to Washington, D.C. and go work in policy or inspired me to be a community organizer or inspired me to be a politician and run for office. Like it was (laughs) it was just an exciting (laughs) moment. Like, I don't know. Like, do you have you ever seen um, Space Odyssey 2001? 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, you went out. Can you still hear me? I'm still here. Oh, can you hear me now? Hello? Hello? Yeah, there I am. Can you hear okay, me? Okay, good. Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, 
everyone's Zoom is like compromised because everybody's on Zoom. I'm sure yeah, it's exactly at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. But no, are you familiar with 2001 A Space Odyssey, the film by Stanley Kubrick? I didn't, I didn't see it, but I did hear about it. But. Okay, so in 2001 Space Odyssey, there's this um, black uh, obelisk like statue type thingy that comes from space and basically inspires all of humanity to like change its trajectory. Mm-hmm. Like it's supposed to be the catalyst that causes, you know, man to start to use tools and to build a society is mm-hmm. the black obelisk, you know, like object. And so that's, that's what Barack Obama was for black people. Like, it was like this thing. It was like, oh my God, if he could do it, anything's possible. So like, mm-hmm. also on the one hand, Barack and Michelle Obama and to a certain extent his children were so inspirational to black people that it, like you have to like take that into consideration along with, with some of the bad that came with his presidency. So it's like, yes, like when it came to like just a successful presidency where you know you didn't really have to worry about too much and shit got done and yes disappointing and disturbing things still happened like drone strikes but at the same time like when ferguson happened or when any major incident of police brutality happened you actually had a president that would talk about it mm-hmm. and cared about it and would send eric holder you know to mm-hmm. st louis to figure out what's going on and there was a you had a department of um of justice that would actually investigate police departments and there was consent decrees and like things would happen now you could debate um how efficient this was at bringing about change and you can debate you know what the ultimate outcome was but the reality was under barack obama's presidency if something bad was happening to black people you at least felt like somebody was listening like you didn't necessarily always like what might maybe his solution or his outcome was because Barack Obama is still you know he's still a creature of this country you know and the presidency is complicated like it's basically so intermeshed with capitalism with the traditional political structures with the fact that racism is systemic in our country that that's hard to unwrap for one person to just unravel on their own. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like you have to weigh his presidency in that way and what he was able to do holistically for Black people, like things like the the Affordable Care Act, hugely important game changer. Um, You know, My Brother's Keeper, wonderful program, helped a lot of youth. Uh, The fact that he would investigate instances of police brutality, the fact that um, you know, black farmers who had been treated with inequity throughout all of American history were actually able to get some justice and some restitution from the federal government under Barack Obama. Like those things were all good. So it's like, yes, like drone strikes are bad. Yes, you know, Wall Street didn't get penalized as much as they probably should have. Um, but I feel like the good that he did ultimately outweighed that. Mm-hmm. Because oh, yeah, when it yeah, comes yeah. down to just like compared to other past presidents, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's what I, you know, that's a litmus test I compare him to. I don't compare to what I wish, you know, Barack Obama could have been. I compare him to the other past presidents. Like he, he was a damn good president compared yeah, to. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm personally a, a big, um, <laughs> a big fan of who he is as, as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as as a person, as a policymaker, all to think about 
you know, what can I tangibly hold up to my people to say, like, what we did here mm-hmm. got you to a better place. And, um, and so, you know, me, me being a fan and also uh, it doesn't mean that, like, you know, we can't have serious criticism. Of course. Or, or me being, like, anti, not, not, not a fan of the current administration, right, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't mean that um, if things happen that my people benefit from that, like, I'm not going to be like, hey, I'm glad that happened. You know, like, mm-hmm. people got out of jail. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what was there? Was there a surge in like uh, subs- like uh, views in the Trump era for the root? Was there like an uptick? Yes, in- like we grew a lot um, yeah. in that first uh, year of his presidency. Um, but it coincided with so many different factors. I don't know if it was so much just people were enraged about Trump and wanted to read about it, mm-hmm. or if it was the fact that we changed our whole approach to how we wrote our stories and presented ourselves. Plus we moved to a new publishing platform. We moved from WordPress to Kenja and Kenja at the time was being served much better on Google. So we, we came up better in Google search after we moved to Kenja. Um, so it was a com- it was a combination of factors that led to our growth. Mm-hmm. So while yes, um, people being enraged about Donald Trump did contribute, I believe, to our growth. Um, it wasn't the main factor. Yeah, some structural things that you know mm-hmm. probably behind the scenes you would necessarily realize. I had a, I had a homie that was working for CNN um, at the time of the administration change, and uh, his brother I went to college with. And he was like, yeah, this is terrible, but, like, CNN has record profits right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like the <laughs> so, news blew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he's, yeah, his um, antics have been good for media. Um, oh, yeah. He's a media-driven president. Like, this is just a reality, an extension of his reality show career. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you watch the State of the Union? The, uh, yeah, State of the Union? State of the Union? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, it was it was it was interesting to me because uh, um, I want to get your commentary on it because <laughs> but uh, I'll just say that like the uh, you know uh, being in politics I, I, I obviously run into opposition with people and mm-hmm. and that your skin gets tougher you gotta like get at folks mm-hmm. um, I was just thinking like damn he has to be like it took some type of something to like on the heels of an impeachment to talk like that to the country. Like you just like are the greatest thing mm-hmm. that ever happened in the history of the world. I was like, this dude <laughs> has like, no, um, you know, it, the show was just like, it was, it was, it was, uh, you had, you're better at words than me, but mm-hmm. it was, it was impressive for that. I was like, damn, I can't believe he went out there and talked like that in the middle of this battle, but what was like, what was your impression of? I mean, for me, it was just typical Trump. It was what I expected. Um, What was shocking to me, which shouldn't have been shocking considering that he's not above this, was him basically exploiting various guests that he brought to the State of the Union for like applause lines and, you know, sympathy. And like, I felt it was really emotionally manipulative, especially Mm -hmm. what he did with um, the military family, Mm -hmm. you know, where... (laughs) Like, I just kept thinking, like, so you were, like, on the one hand, like, all right, I'm glad, the, you know, the family's back together. But on the other hand, I'm like, this seems like a private moment that shouldn't be used for political points. Like, this is actually really tacky and gauche and emotionally manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find, found it just 
revolting in a lot of ways. Um, uh, because it just felt like he was just using people as pawns. Like, I didn't feel like he actually cared about any of these people. They were all mm-hmm. just emotional puppets in order to get like a particular response mm-hmm. um, from the audience viewing it at home, which I'd never seen anyone really use the State of the Union in my lifetime in that way. Like, you know, people obviously, past presidents have used to set their agenda or to set a tone for the nation or, you know, wartime presidents have like addressed about how we're going to like deal with you know, war and destruction and lives being ruined. But it's just like, his was just like, it was a very P.T. Barnum, you know? Like, I expected, like, at some point, like, you know, I, I kept wondering, like, how far is this going to go? Like, is, if he gets reelected, is the next State of the Union, like, is he going to have, like, is it going to be, like, like, going to a Laker game? Like, will there be, like, cheerleaders that come out and, like, actually perform? You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. Well, what about the HBCUs? Or so like the so like the um, the uh, so I am not a fan of Donald Trump whatsoever, right? And okay, yeah. About um, what you said about the the emotion manipulative aspect of it is very much on point. Like when I mm-hmm. saw, him. and he had you know he had the black single mom up there. Yeah. Um, he had the Tuskegee Airmen up there. Mm-hmm. I, I met a, I met a Tuskegee Airmen once in person, maybe like you know, ten years ago, and I was like so honored that he. I was like, I want to yeah. shake. Your hand. I just want to. I don't want to say. I just want to shake your hand, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there, there is, um, there is a pageantry, especially around like highlighting black people, that uh, is is repulsive. And then he has this picture of him with all the presidents of the HBCUs in his office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was your, what were your thoughts on that when that happened? You know, when that picture came out, I was just like, wow. Um, but, I mean, this is Trump's whole thing. Like, he loves taking pictures with black people and then being mm-hmm. like, black people love me. See, look, here's photos <laughs> Um, and you're just kind of like, you know, just because people agree to be in a photo with you doesn't necessarily mean that they love you. Like, mm-hmm. that's so bizarre. But that's very typical for his line of thinking. I mean, Trump is a racist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't expect him to be particularly nuanced when it comes to how things look. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to refer to people as my African-American and to do photo ops, you know, where you got all the HBCU presidents behind you or you find religious leaders who just happen to be black, who happen to agree with you for some bizarre reason. Right. And you do these photo ops with them and you're like, see, see, black people love me. Like, and you look at the polling and it's like, he's polling like what, 7% like in black America right, right now. Like nobody, nobody likes him. Right. So, um, was it, was it wrong for the presidents to go? I mean, I probably wouldn't have gone, but that was during a more optimistic time where people were hoping that even though Trump had been a non-traditional presidential candidate, and a huckster, they thought like, oh, the stature of the office will calm him down and, you know, he'll, they'll get him under control and he'll become more disciplined. So that was during a time when people still thought that was a possibility. So I, I forgive. <laughs> Those yeah, poor no, really yeah, they, You know, they, like they didn't know. I mean, yeah. I knew, but they didn't know. Yeah, yeah. A um, lot of people didn't know back then. Right. Yeah, I mean, what, what's what I've seen happening? Uh, you know, I, I went to, I went to Williams College. I didn't go to historically black college. Mm-hmm. I often feel like I, I missed out. Like I, oh, I, I definitely feel like I missed out. Um, uh, 
the first time I went to Howard was like my freshman year during spring break. And I'd never seen that many black people period ever. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of my childhood growing up in San Francisco was, was pretty much like non-white. Like my, my teachers were white. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very different than my professional life in San Francisco. It's like very, very white. Um, but when I went to Howard, I was like, damn, it's like this many black people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know, I spent the month in Kenya last year. So I got that's a whole different type of experience around, you know, uh African, uh the African community. But um when I look at the graduation rates from the HBCUs, mm-hmm. um it's it's pretty it's you know, it's it's like it's it's really heartbreaking uh, mm-hmm. to see the I mean college graduation is its own topic, like what that yeah. means and what that should look like. And then uh, historically how they're funded. Mm-hmm. Um, I, read, I read, I ran a nonprofit that taught coding in high schools. It was called Mission Bit. We, we ran like after school and summer programs, ran that for like five years. And um, while I was doing that, I read uh, Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery. Mm-hmm. And it talked about the founding of Tuskegee. And, uh, and one of the lines that stood out to me was when he was starting Tuskegee, there were like white overseers that came to donate to the school. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gave him like chickens, you know, something, they gave him something, right? <laughs> they gave him something, right? And then they, they would say things like, uh, you know, if I can give you one chicken, these niggers can give you two. And, and, uh, and so he took the chicken and he said, mm-hmm. thank you. And then he went on and built the school. Mm-hmm. So when I thought about that picture, I thought about like Tuskegee, you know, and uh, what, what type of deals do you have to make in order to like keep the operation moving? Oh yeah, like this is about survival for historically black colleges and universities. Um, you know, I don't, like I said, again, I don't fault the, the presidents for, you know, trying to work with this administration because they, they kind of have to, you know, mm-hmm. if they want to get the funding that they need. But what a lot of people don't realize with HBCUs, um, the part of the reason why their graduation numbers aren't quite the same as you would see in other schools is because HBCUs take a, like, a much wider breadth of Black students, mm-hmm. even some who might not academically be in the place they need to be in order to start college. Um, and this has historically always been the case. Um, we can go back to like when my dad was um, admitted into um, um, Prairie View A&M. And when he first started, he had to get caught up with some remedial classes so he could get up to speed um, before he could begin to take his engineering courses. Um, And obviously that worked out great for him because he went on to have an amazing career in engineering. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're taking um, students that ordinarily other schools wouldn't take for a variety of reasons, whether it's their finances or their grades, like you're going to have some of those students aren't going to make it through the process, you know, because they already were on a shakier foundation to kind of to begin with. That's not that student's fault in most cases. A lot of times they come from poorer school districts that, again, don't have the same resources. In some cases, they're the first person in their family to go off to college. So this is a brand new experience um, for them they've never had before. And college is not easy, mm-hmm. you know, like, we kind of like I take I you know take it for granted because the fact that I went to really good public schools, um, I was v- extremely prepared for college. 
you know, I tested out of a lot of the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the preliminary courses that you have to take when you first come in. Like I didn't have to take like year one Spanish. They put me like in year two or three Spanish because I'd already tested out of it. Um, but um, that's not, huh? You speak Spanish? No, I just know how to read it really well. Like I can't speak it at all. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so like black students, you know, when you're already at a disadvantage because of systemic racism, because you've gone to a school that didn't have as many resources, because you grew up in a poor area, because you might be the first person in your family to go to college, you might not be prepared for college. HBCUs do try very hard to give students the support that they need, but that is a really tough hurdle to get over when you don't have any real support outside of that school. Mm -hmm. And HBCUs are also, they have their own struggles and their own burdens as well. So they're like, they're trying to help their students, but at the same time, like they need money, they need funding, you know, they need what they need to survive. Um, so I don't feel like it's fair to compare an HBCU's graduation rates to like, say, a private, you know, a, a, a white institution, essentially. Yeah, well, there, I mean, there's, not just HBCUs, but there are a number of other public universities that also have low graduation rates. Mm -hmm. um, I only really care because it's an HBCU and I want to see it do, do well. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Like you want to see it do well, but like for every student, like my mom and my dad who, you know, grew up, you know, at, in abject poverty and had to get up to speed and succeeded. I mean, there's tons of people who just didn't make it. Do you have other ventures that you're currently working on? Oh, yes. So I'm writing a book. I'm actually writing two books, um, which I'm, and writing, I'd say loosely, it's more like struggle writing okay. right now. So I have really bad writer's block, but I'm, I'm writing through it. Mm -hmm. um, one is a self-help memoir of sorts um, that is about bipolar disorder. Um, I suffer from bipolar disorder type two. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's about how I reached a point of peace with uh, my illness and how I managed to, you know, find a path towards success and stability in spite of this very debilitating mental illness. Mm. Um, so that's one book. The other book is a science fiction novel um, that I feel like I wrote like 200 pages of it and then got 200 pages into it and realized it was garbage. I was just like, oh, oh I got to trash this story. <laughs> <laughs> so like I'm in the process of trying to like restructure it. Mm -hmm. and make some changes um but yeah i'm really into sci-fi so okay it's okay. a dream of mine to be um a published author mm -hmm. um yeah i met uh mary baraka back mm -hmm. when i was in college and uh he was like big in the big in the sci-fi and i yeah I, no i love sci-fi mm -hmm. and when i met him uh this is going to get i want i want to i want to circle back around to the um of uh, uh, bipolar disorder type two, but when I, I met him, he was Ross Baraka. His son is now Mayor of Newark, mm -hmm. and uh, they were they were not uh, Booker fans when like yeah. he was mayor. And um, and so when I met uh, Baraka, I didn't really get it at the time because I was like so uh, like like how I was glued to Obama when I saw mm -hmm. Street Fight the documentary. I was like yo like. Cory Booker is the man. Like, how yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you not like Cory Booker, but um, but you know, I started to 
layer it back. Yeah, well, you dig a little deeper, then it gets yeah. more, the picture is much more complex. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so uh, I look forward to reading your sci-fi book. No, um, thank you. <laughs> when it's done. Uh, what, so for what, what, it, what, it, what exactly is uh, bipolar type 2 disorder and how does it sort of distinguish itself by the number? Sure. So bipolar disorder is a mood disorder um, where there's some instability between like um, your mood swings. Um, you kind of vacillate between, you know, mania, which is where you're really excited or agitated or you're really up, you don't need sleep. Um, you have lots of energy. Um, you sometimes like do reckless things like spend too much money or have unprotected sex or just get into like various scrapes and troubles sometimes. And other times if you can have like, and in my case, I have a, a milder form of mania because I have bipolar type two, which is more defined by depression. It's called hypomania and hypomania um, will fuel like creativity. So you'll want to like write and paint and just, you'll also think you don't need to sleep or eat also. And you will also spend a ton of money but you might not be quite as reckless, but you can be, you know, so it's a milder form of mania. Um, and when you're depressed, you are extremely suppressed. Um, there's sometimes instances of suicidal ideation. Um, you might have anxiety, you might have panic attacks. Um, you might have other overlaying illnesses. Um, there's a lot of people with bipolar that have dual diagnosis, which is where um, you have both bipolar disorder and another uh, malady, like say uh, addiction or anxiety or phobias. Mm -hmm. um, most people with dual diagnosis are usually referring to though um, substance abuse mm -hmm. and a mental illness. But um, bipolar type two is more defined by depression. The mania is milder, but the depression is, you know, it's, very, you know, it's very severe. Mm -hmm. um, bipolar type one is more defined by the mania, the up feeling, the agitation. Okay. And, uh, but when they're depressed, it's also a very severe depression when it happens as well. I so um, I have type two, I was diagnosed in uh, 2005, mm -hmm. December, 2005. Mm -hmm. um, before that, I'd been misdiagnosed with uh, just a ton of other things. Because, um, you know, the reality is, is that um, it's very easy to get misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, to, you know, if you have something else, like, for example, they thought I just had depression because every time they saw me, I was depressed. Mm. So it was like, surely she has depression. That's what it is. Not understanding that, you know, they weren't seeing me when I was like feeling great because I thought that was the normal me. I thought the me that spent like, you know, a thousand dollars on tickets to Prince concerts, didn't need sleep and could exercise all day was the real me. And this depressed person was the imposter that needed to go away. Um, and so it wasn't until like I was hospitalized that they were able to actually see like, oh, wow, she clearly is bipolar. She's having these really severe mood swings when you put her on an antidepressant and there's no mood stabilizer. Mm -hmm. um, I, which means like, I just can't, like, mo like most bipolar people, I just can't take an antidepressant because um, it swings me over into depression. It swings me into suicidal ideation. There has to be another medication called a mood stabilizer um, that kind of evens things out. So for some people, like that's lithium, 
which is probably one of the oldest drugs used to treat bipolar disorder for other people. It's Lamictal or like I'm on Abilify. So it really just varies. Um, what some things that work for some people will not work for others at all. Right. Um, you're very much a guinea pig, which is a very frustrating process. And that's why I feel like um, there's such a high um, rate of people who don't get better because they get frustrated because mm-hmm. um, it's so hard trying to find that right mix of drugs and therapy and coping skills in order to get to a place of peace and where you feel even. Mm. Yeah, that's going to be a really important book for you to write. Um, I'm glad you're, you're doing that and you're being open about that. The, the discussion, especially like an education about uh, uh, mental health and wellness, um, you know, is has definitely elevated over the last uh, few yeah, years. Yeah, definitely. And so, um, you know, and that, that process to, to figuring out what's actually going on um, is, uh, I'm sure it was like, what, what was that like when you figure out, hey, this is what it is? What was, was that like? Like, thank, finally, like, what, what, what was that experience like? Um, when I found out that um, I had, you know, what my actual diagnosis was, um, I was scared because, you know, I knew I was depressed, but bipolar sounded really serious. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it is, it's a very serious illness. You you have it for the rest of your life. Um, And a lot of people, you know, don't make it. A lot of people, you know, fall into the depths of despair, can't deal with the mood swings and eventually take their own lives or live their lives in a way that is so unhealthy that they end up dying of other things Mm -hmm. prematurely. So I was scared when I found out I was bipolar. Also, I didn't know anyone who was living with the disease. Like when you're first diagnosed, you're only around other people who are severely ill. So mm-hmm. you just think, oh, that's just what it is. Like, you know, this is what's normal is like, you don't have a job. Um, you struggle day to day to try to figure things out. You, you rely on the help of your friends and family who you hopefully don't burn out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just feel like a burden. And that's what I thought my life was going to be. I was just going to be a burden to people. And, you know, the, it's not shocking that people would stop taking care of themselves or would commit suicide if that's what they thought their life was just going to be from mm-hmm. here on out. I was like, I'm just going to be a burden to everyone that I love. So I should just end it so they're free of me, which is not the right way to think about it um, at all. Um, and so what I had, I, what I did... Um, when I was in the hospital in California, a doctor came to me. He says, you're so good at talking about this. Because um, a lot of the other patients like to talk to me about what they were going through as well. And so we would have these really in-depth and really deep conversations. And he's like, and you're a writer, you know, you should really write something about it. Mm-hmm. And I told him, like, I don't feel like I'm mentally in the space where I can write about it yet. Mm-hmm. But I made a promise to myself that if I ever got to a point where I was stable, and was healthy, I would write about it and would be open with being bipolar because I wanted other bipolar people to see that like, look, like you can totally live with this illness. Mm-hmm. You can totally have a normal life. You can fall in love. You can work. Um, you can make a career for yourself. You can make friends. You can live on your own. You can take care of yourself. You know, it's just a process that you have to go through to find the right therapies and medications and coping skills that'll make your life livable. Um, and so I wanted people to see that. So, so as scary as it was to find out I was bipolar, um, once I accepted my diagnosis, um, then it became all about trying to get healthy. 
And then once I got healthy, then it became, okay, now is the time to actually talk to people about it. Um, so people don't feel alone. Uh, you're a very busy woman. <laughs> running, running, running major publications. Uh, generously giving your time to upstarts like me. That's ah, no trouble. <laughs> what is, uh, do you have like a daily routine? I mean, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the things with being bipolar, um, at least in my case and how it manifests, my routine kind of depends on what my mood is that day. If my mood is good and I feel great and I got enough sleep and I, you know, didn't do anything too crazy the night before, like, I, you know, I have a whole system. I get up and make my bed. I shower. I, you know, do my makeup. I you know, do my hair. I go to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I sometimes work out a little and get some exercise and I try to eat you know, at least twice a day or more, you know, because if I don't eat, like that triggers things, you know, it's like, it's a whole mess in there. So um, if my mood is bad, then it's just like, well, let's just do what we got to do to get the day done. So the bed doesn't get made, dishes might not get washed, um, you know, things that I would normally take care of don't get taken care of. I'm just primarily focused on, on, I'm going in and out again. Um, cause I'm primarily just focused on work. So I ex- use all my energy and just devoted to getting my job done that day. And all this, you know, the stuff that I would normally do to take care of myself just goes out the window if my mood is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a, uh, a book recommendation? A book recommendation? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I have several. I have several, but... <laughs> 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 I would read uh, Damon Young's what, uh, what Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Um, I have a book right here um, by a friend of mine who has bipolar disorder, uh, Bossy Ickbees. Um, I'm lying, but I'm telling the truth. Okay. So I would recommend that. I'm reading Children of Blood and Bone. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. Um, just so many good books, okay. you know, out right now. So many incredible black authors. So mm-hmm. yeah. Do you have a music recommendation? Music recommendations? Oh my goodness! So like this morning, you know, I was listening. You only to- pick one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this morning, I was listening to um, the soundtrack from the TV show Westworld because I love it so much. Okay. Um, I it's just moody atmospheric music like it's so beautiful mm-hmm. but um of music that's not from a tv show like, I listen <laughs> to a lot of music um so it's hard for me just to pick um just someone in particular like i discovered this album by usher raymond that came out like a few years back called a mm. which is all about his high rolling atlanta lifestyle okay um that's produced by zaytoven that i love uh-huh. <laughs> i listen to that thing all the time okay um it's very interesting um it's a good companion piece to um jasmine sullivan's reality show mm. they're almost like you know like bookends of each other like one is about like the man r&b baller perspective and one's about the perspective of the woman who dates the man <laughs> Who is like the baller yeah. so it's a really cool like a reality reality shows to me is jasmine sullivan's like one of her best albums mm. um and i it's it tells a story it's interesting the music is really good the songs are good she has a beautiful voice okay. so those are, my, those are my two music recommendations okay. where, where is your favorite place in the world to go 
My favorite place in the world to go. Well, for the longest time, that used to be Santa Barbara, California. Huh, that's interesting. So much. <laughs> like, I'd love the beach at Santa Barbara. Uh, but then I went back, and, you know, like, I hadn't been in, like, a decade or more. Um, and I realized, you know, the saying that you can never go home again. So it's like, I went back, and it wasn't that it wasn't still nice. It was still a very nice sleepy beach town but it was no longer what i needed mm. when i was severely depressed and dealing with bipolar disorder and was really really sick i needed to go to some place that was just quiet mm -hmm. you know where you would just sit on a beach and paint and be left alone and then go to a nice restaurant and have a nice meal that's all i wanted you know mm. from anything back then and like now i'm like i want to go out and i want to see people and i want to do this and i want to do that and it's like no this is a sleepy beach town we're taking a nap yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, like, yeah. I don't, and I didn't want to take a nap. I wanted to partay. So, yeah. um, one of the things about um, uh, me is that I'm an extrovert. Well, I was a hardcore extrovert most of my life. Then I became an introvert when my disease got really bad. And now I'm kind of like both. Mm -hmm. So, the things that appealed to me when I was really sick. It's not that they don't still still appeal to me, but not in the same way. So yeah. yeah now yeah. my favorite place is probably hmm, maybe Miami. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm not a big maybe fan. Of France? Uh, I don't know. Like I went to Paris last year, and it was it was the bomb. So yeah. It, I think it'd be it, it'd be a problem too if I didn't like ask you about Harlem before we before we. Of uh, course. So this is a dream. I <laughs> I always wanted to live in Harlem. As you heard me mention before, my favorite period of literature from Black American history is the Harlem Renaissance. Um, I love the history. I love the Apollo. I love the attitude of the people. I love the fact that it's so rich and steeped in Black history, like from Adam Clayton Powell to Malcolm X to just all these just amazing folks langston hughes and like i went to langston hughes house for a book reading and almost burst into tears like i was so moved just to be in that house mm -hmm. with someone who inspired me to write mm -hmm. you know who's such an important figure to to literature literature period to english literature you know and so like I love Harlem. Like, I just think it's beautiful. And I live on um, 110th across the street from the park. Mm -hmm. And I live in a very, 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 very old, 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 old building. But I love it. <laughs> and um, I'm probably going to be here for a minute unless, you know, coronavirus. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, whenever I, I, I used to go to New York every year, whenever I went I either stayed in, in Harlem or Brooklyn and uh, there's definitely a vibe in Harlem that um, is like uniquely itself. Yes. Um, and you know what well, one of the things I was I was trying to get at when it when it, when it was related to like these this presidential conversation is mm -hmm. that um, often what goes overlooked is the importance of uh, you know local politics and how issues are being addressed locally. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that there's something happening in Harlem that other like black policymakers or black leaders should should be taking and trying to bring or that they like sort of a best practice that they've achieved? 
You know, I think historically there's probably some things you can look at that would be very informative. Right now, Harlem's going through a spate of gentrification that's pushing a lot of the residents who've always lived here out, Mm -hmm. um, which is very sad. Um, Like, you could argue in some cases that uh, the Harlem that we all grew up reading about and that we loved, like, there's still remnants of it. But it's just not what it used to be now that it is almost, you know, fully gentrified in many aspects. So it's not completely like you can still go to certain parts of Harlem, especially if you go to um, uh, East Harlem, if you go to Spanish Harlem, like it's still very much what it's always been in, in certain neighborhoods and certain pockets. But gentrification has had a huge, huge, huge impact. Um, if there's any learnings, I feel like around gentrification that people could probably take a good place to study is New York's Chinatown because mm. Chinatown has not changed at all. Like, <laughs> shows, yeah. <laughs> like they, I don't know how they've done this. Like someone needs to do a story on this. Uh-huh. Someone needs to investigate it because the Chinatown is still Chinatown. Like it's still full of the same residents who've always lived there. It's full of the same businesses that have always been there. Like the only thing that could really hurt it is the coronavirus, what's happening right now, which is impacting all business and all people, regardless of their background. But they've done a good job of keeping gentrification out of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's something definitely worth exploring. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, Ms. Belton. Uh, Daniel Belton is on IG at Belton Danielle, Twitter yep. at Black Snob with an S B L A C K S N O B. Editor in chief of the root. That is All correct. Badass, unapologetically black. <laughs> day we D I E about that life, but not that life. I saw that on your one of your. Yeah, that is me. Like I am a marshmallow. So it's like, even though I'm from St. Louis and St. Louis people are tough as nails, uh, I am not. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Oh, it's so trouble.